invite you now, if you are able, to stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, family of God. I'm so glad not to be preaching to an iPad right now. (laughs) What a glorious moment this is. Thank God for the spiritual unity of Jesus that can sustain us even when we're separated by distance. I do know that there's a lot of our church family who, because of medical risks, is still at home fellowshipping with us by a distance. So we love you. Our hearts are united with you as well today. I'm excited to dig into God's word. Our text, Philippians 2, is a text that just feels incredibly relevant for the world today because this is a text in which the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul is teaching us the secret to becoming unifiers in a divided world. So in a world that is divided by all kinds of stuff, how can we seek unity? How can we be peacemakers? So our topic today is unity in a divided world. And that feels pretty timely to me. Does that feel timely to you? We have a world in which we are experiencing all kinds of division. We're divided by politics, aren't we, in the world? We're divided by economics sometimes, rich and poor and middle class, often living in different neighborhoods, going to different schools, having very different experiences of what does it mean to live in the United States of America. And as we have such different experiences and different frames of reference, that can lead to misunderstanding. It can lead to bitterness and alienation from one another. We're divided often not only by politics and economics, by, uh, but by ethnicity, by gender, by so many things. You know, the diversity of God's good world is God's good idea. Our ethnic diversity, our cultural diversity is created by God For the purpose of giving glory to God. So that we in all of our diversity can reflect the infinite beauty of God to a greater degree than we could if we were all the same. And yet because of our sin, we get alienated from one another. So we live in a world in which there is much division. But my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would do a deep work inside of us to make us a community of peacemakers. A community of reconcilers, a community of uniters in a divided world. But for that to happen, the the work has to begin inside of us. We need God to do a work in us so that he can do a work through us. So would you bow your head with me before we proceed? I just want to take a moment to quiet our hearts. And I want to invite you where you are just to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to teach you, and to do a transforming work in your heart today. Our Father in heaven, 
In this moment, we do worship you. We acknowledge your goodness. And we also, right now, lament some of those realities that we just talked about of division in our world. We lament the fact that as we turn on the news and as we talk to our friends recently, um, it's just in our face that centuries of racial injustice and ethnic division in our country um, have burdened us with the great burden of pain and trauma and sin. And Lord, we confess today we cannot rescue ourselves. And as we look at so many of the divisions in our land and in the world, we lament that and we say, God, we cannot rescue ourselves, but we worship you, Jesus, you are the great peacemaker. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do a work in our hearts today to help us become a people who have been so transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can become your instruments of peace on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to remind you of the four verses that Chauncey preached to us about last week. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip back or just glance back at some verses that were not in your bulletin. They're not read to you right now. But let's, let's remind ourselves how Philippians chapter 2 verse starts in verse 1. The text says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm not going to talk about that too much right now because Chauncey preached on it for us beautifully last week. But by way of reminder, we can just summarize what Paul was saying in those words is this. If you enjoy a relationship with Jesus, you need to allow that relationship with Jesus to transform you so that the experience of your vertical relationship with God transforms your horizontal relationships with one another. Or to put it more simply, if you know that God loves you, you got to learn how to love one another. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, let's love each other. I'm going to ask you all to repeat even more stuff than usual today because I can tell everybody's just been looking at a screen in their living room for the last couple months. So we got to liven it up a little bit in here. Now, what he's saying here is fight for unity. Fight for unity. Let your experience of relationship with God transform you so that you refuse to live in a world and especially you refuse to accept a, a reality in which the church of Jesus Christ is divided by sin instead of united by the love and the grace of God. Fight for unity. And this is a reminder to us that we're not the first generation to deal with disunity and division. The Roman Empire dealt with division. Okay? In the Roman Empire, there was... Uh, incredible prejudice and incredible division because of economics. There were slaves and there was division based on ethnicity, Jews and Gentiles, barbarian and Scythian. Uh, it was a world in which women were treated as being 
uh, lesser, of less value, ontologically inferior to men. It was a world in which there was much division, and that division may have often existed uncomfortably under the surface, but it often exploded violently in a visible way. So the Roman Empire was faced by the same kind of divisions that we face today. And what Paul is saying is that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be so transformed by the love of God that the way that we treat each other in this community becomes an oasis of peace and love and, and uh, unity in a divided world. Now this should cause us to ask a question of ourselves today. I want to ask you to think about this reflective question. Church of Jesus Christ, are we divided by the same stuff that divides the world? Are we divided by the same stuff that divides the world? Or has the gospel so penetrated our hearts that the love of Jesus in us burns through the barriers that divide people from one another in our world? That's the question. Are we divided by what divides the world? Now, if you ask that question of Paul about the church in Philippi, to whom he's writing these words, if, he, if we asked him, is that church in Philippi divided by the stuff that divides the world? I think from the evidence that we send, see in this letter, Paul's answer would be yes and no. If we say, is the church at Philippi an oasis of peace and love and unity within the Roman Empire? I think Paul would say yes and no. Yes, because they are a church in which men and women, young and old, rich and poor, lots of ethnic groups have learned how to love each other. But it's also a church in which they're struggling with disunity and fighting. It's not all one or all the other. And if I ask the question about Christ Community Church, is Christ Community Church a church that's an oasis of peace and love and unity in a divided world? I think my honest answer would have to be yes and no. Yes and no. I would say yes because within this church, I see so many people who love each other deeply. Even in this room, there's four or five or six ethnicities and there's friendships crossing those boundaries and there's people from several different decades of, of their lifespan in this room and there's people from a lot of different socioeconomic bathrooms, but we love each other. We're family in here, aren't we? And yet, if I ask the question, does anybody feel like we have arrived in the area of unity? <laughs> I got one no and a lot of blank stares. It's okay to be honest. Sometimes we're so much like family that we have family feuds, aren't we? And sometimes they're in our own households, our actual like, uh, I'm not going to take a show of hands of who fought with their roommates over the last three months, whether you're married to them or not. Um, the, the discomfort and the change that's happening in the world puts pressure often on our most intimate relationships, showing us that we have some room to grow. Not only that, but I want to say, friends, we got a lot of room to grow, even with some of this ethnic reconciliation stuff that I've been talking about and that we're talking about in the world. Um, because just because we're all sitting in the same room at pews on Sunday singing the same Jesus doesn't mean we really know each other. It doesn't mean that we really have yet got to where Jesus wants us to get, that all of us are bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ, that we're weeping with those who weep, that we're rejoicing with those who rejoice. That we're quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. Now, I'm not trying to be condemning because I see a lot of that stuff happening in this church. I'm just saying, we ain't there yet. We haven't arrived yet. And I think 
The text today is Jesus calling us deeper. Call us deeper, Holy Spirit, right now into this reality of unity. Now, if we're going to do what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4, then we have to deeply understand what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Because the simple logic of this passage is that there is no hope for unity and divided world apart from Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Look with me again at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Everybody say the mind of Christ. Paul is talking to people who have believed in Jesus. You've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're Christian people. And he says that one of the privileges of being in Christ Jesus is now the mind of Jesus is inside of you. So we talked a few weeks ago about this issue of union with Christ. Everybody say, in Christ Jesus. We did these hand motions. You remember that? When you trust in Jesus, you're united with Christ. And that means God forgives your sins. God adopts you into his family. God gives you the hope of eternal life. And one of the things it means, according to this text, is that when you trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit planted the seed of a new way of thinking and a new way of feeling inside of you. And Paul calls that the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ has already been planted in your heart. And now what you've got to do is water it with the word of God. Water it with the gospel. Let it grow deep roots into your heart. And then it produces fruit in your life. So this is about our ongoing transformation as Christians. Well, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ in us? To, to understand what Paul is talking about, we need to pay attention to two phrases that come up. First, I want you to look in verse 6. Where Paul says this phrase, the form of God. Everybody say the form of God. And then in verse 7, Paul says the form of a servant. Everybody say the form of a servant. Paul is saying to us that if we look at Jesus simultaneously, we see the form of God and the form of a servant. Now, what does that mean? We could talk about this for hours going into the details of what Paul says here. But in brief, Paul is saying when he, when he says the form of God, he's trying to say to us, before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, like we celebrate every Christmas, Jesus already existed and he was already God. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son, co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Father. He is God from God, light from light, very God of very God. So Jesus is divine. He's God. And yet... When he came to the earth, he clothed himself with a human nature. What Paul is talking about here when he says the form of a servant. Everybody say that again. Say the form of a servant. God the creator took onto himself a human nature. He entered into the history of the world in a new way. He clothed himself with the clothes of a servant when he became man and walked among us. So that when we look at Jesus, we see true God and true man. We see one person and two natures, fully God and fully human. They're not mixed. Jesus is not half God and half human. Jesus is all the way God and all the way human. Now, the implications of this are huge. Here's what it means. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And you'll find the love of God fully revealed. Look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you'll see the power of God fully revealed. Look at Jesus as he feeds the hungry and heals the sick and forgives sins and teaches people and exercises hospitality. As he loves people across all those boundaries of gender and ethnicity and economics that separated people from each other in his culture. When you look at Jesus, you see God. But the flip side of this is not only... Is it true that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus? It's also true. If you want to know what it means to be authentically human, you look at Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. He's the fullest revelation of God, and he is also the full revelation of what human beings are created to be. He's the prototype of authentic humanity. One of my teachers, Kevin Van Hooser at seminary, put it like this, that Jesus is the truth about God He's the truth about humanity, and he's the truth of God's relationship to humanity. It's all about Jesus. Now, to continue understanding what Paul says, we need to look at two more phrases. Look at verse 7. Paul says that even though Jesus was in the form of God, in other words, even though he's divine, even though he's eternally God, he emptied himself. You see that in verse 7? That's an important phrase. He emptied himself. And then, skipping down to verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So he is God, and yet he emptied himself, and then God exalted him. Let's talk about what that means. What does it mean to say he emptied himself? Well, first we can talk about what it doesn't mean. That does not mean that Jesus ever in any way ceased to be God or became less God. Jesus can't stop being God the Son, and God cannot change. The divine nature of of God cannot change as Hebrews 13:8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So it's not saying that he ceased to be God, but it's saying that when Jesus took a human nature unto himself for our salvation, he emptied himself in the sense of pouring himself out in self-giving humility and love. That's what this is talking about. Jesus poured himself out in self-giving humility and love. When Jesus clothed himself with humanity, he clothed himself with our vulnerability. He clothed himself with our weakness. Ultimately, he bore our sin, our guilt, our shame, and our death on the cross. He modeled for us a life of total obedience to his Father. He showed us what obedience is like. He modeled to us a life of service to other people. And if you want to know the depths of the self-giving love of God, you just have to look at the distance between the throne of God in heaven and the cross of Jesus. That's how far God will be willing to go. What Paul is saying here is the fullest revelation of the majesty and glory of God is, in fact, the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Because it's there when we see the deepest thing we know about God, namely that God is love. God is self-giving love. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, especially at his cross. What Paul is saying, in other words, is that when we look at the cross of Jesus, we're seeing the fullest manifestation of something that's told us throughout the scriptures, namely that God is high, and yet God shows us his highness and holiness precisely by coming down low. I wish we had time to look at Psalm 113 and, and look at Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 and 
Look at Isaiah 57 and all these passages that talk about God is high and holy and yet he comes down low. And as a matter of fact, if you want to understand the majesty and the holiness of God, look especially at these moments in which God comes down low to enter into the pain of people, to heal them with this love and to lift up the downtrodden by his restorative justice. That's the heart of God. But then it says God exalted Jesus. God exalted Jesus. What does that mean? Well, after he died, he rose again. Jesus is alive. And after he rose from the grave, he appeared to his disciples. And then he ascended up to heaven and he sat down on a throne where he is still sitting today. Jesus right now has the name above every name, which means despite all the chaos in the world, despite, my goodness, despite a pandemic, Despite ethnic tensions, despite whatever's going to hit the news tomorrow, this year is crazy, y'all. If we ever needed to see a reminder that the world is filled with chaos and we can't see, save ourselves, all we needed was the year 2020. And yet what we're seeing is despite all of that, Jesus is on the throne. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. And Paul says one day he's going to come back and then... When Jesus returns in glory, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, which means that's the end of evil. That's the end of injustice. That's when all the innocent sufferers are going to be vindicated. That's when tears are going to be wiped from every eye. Now, that's the gospel. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, what does that have to do with us? And especially, what does that have to do with this theme of unity in a divided world that we're talking about today? And it's real simple. The message is this, when we trust in Jesus Christ, not only does God forgive our sins, but God sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us in such a way that the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus plays over and over in our minds and in our hearts until it changes us and we become like Jesus. We learn a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, a new way of listening, a new way of serving, a new way of interacting. And as we are radically transformed, now we become the kind of people who can be unifiers in a divided world. And it starts right here with us. It starts with the church learning how to love the church, the people of God learning how to love one another so that this can be an oasis of God's peace. To, to just begin to help us think about how this works, I want to tell you a story and uh, the story involves a guy named Charles Marsh. Now, Charles Marsh today is a professor who teaches in the Department of Religion at the University of Virginia, and he writes books about lots of my heroes. He writes books about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King Jr., um, and he's written a lot about the civil rights movement. But long before Charles Marsh um, became this famous scholar, he had a very different life. And he was not involved in the civil rights movement. As a matter of fact, in his own words, he was a fifth-generation Mississippi white person from a family of racists. The great-great-grandfather of Charles Marsh was a founding member of the Ku Klux Klan. And his grandmother um, was a woman who loved to go to church. She loved to read her Bible. She loved to pray. Her bookshelf was lined with the works of F.B. Meyer and John Calvin and C.S. Lewis. She loved to read those and spend hours listening to sermons, and she despised black people. She was a racist. And Charles Marsh grew up in that environment. And as he started growing up and Jesus started speaking to him and the culture started changing, he became uneasy 
with this racism. And he began to sense this is not compatible with the kingdom of God. And he went off to college and then he went to do He signed up for a summer inner city ministry project. Not because he had gotten to the place in his life where he cared about serving inner city kids or fighting against racism. But because there was a cute daughter of a Presbyterian minister who was going to do it. And so he wanted to follow her. And as a matter of fact, two years later, he married her. As has happened for many of you in this room who came to the Gospel Project, found your spouse, and here you are today. But that's what happened to Charles Marsh. And as he was getting ready for that inner city missions project in Atlanta in 1980, the leaders of the project sent a book for everybody to read in preparation. And the book was Let Justice Roll Down by John Perkins. Some of you all read that book. It's a great book, isn't it? And as he was reading this book about John Perkins, one of my personal heroes, African-American man, son of a sharecropper, um, growing up, experienced intense racism. His, his brother, African-American, came home from World War I with a purple heart and then was shot and killed by a racist white sheriff in their small town in Mississippi. He experienced intense racism. He was mad at God. He hated white people until he moved off to California and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and it changed everything. And then he came back to Mississippi and he started youth evangelism ministry and men's discipleship ministry. And he started organizing for civil rights advocacy. And the story of Let Justice Roll Down tells the story of John Perkins. Now, as Charles Marsh started reading this, he thought, this guy lives down the street from my racist grandmother. I've got to meet him. So Charles Marsh is like 20. John Perkins is 50 at this point. And Charles Marsh calls up John Perkins and says, I'm reading your book. It's changing my life. Can I meet you? John Perkins says, sure. And tells him, hey, I'm supposed to go speak to a youth rally. Why don't you come and drive me? It's about an hour away. You can drive me to the youth rally. We can talk on the way. Then on the way back, we can go to Shoney's and eat some fudge cake and talk about life. So Charles Marsh is super nervous. He's about to go meet this man whom he so admires. John Perkins gets in the car. Charles Marsh starts driving, and John Perkins immediately falls asleep. So John Perkins is sleeping in the car, and Charles Marsh is driving. Now, 1980, some of y'all don't remember 1980. But 1980 was before GPS. This was before smartphones. You're just driving, okay? John Perkins was supposed to tell him where to go. But he's a scared 20-year-old sitting next to his sleeping 50-year-old hero, so he doesn't wake him up. He just drives for like an hour and a half, two hours. Finally, he's out of gas, and so he has to stop at a, a, a gas station. John Perkins wakes up and says, where are we? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> I felt embarrassed. I didn't want to wake you up. John Perkins looked at his watch and says, well, I don't think we're going to make it to this youth rally. Charles Marsh is humiliated. He says, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. And John Perkins says, I didn't want to talk to those kids anyway. Let's go get the fudge cake. So they go get some fudge cake. They sit at Shoney's till late at night talking about Jesus, talking about the work that John Perkins was doing, talking about how the gospel transforms us so that we become peacemakers and unifiers in a divided world. And on the way back, Charles Marsh, for the first time in his life, starts telling an African-American person about his family's history. And he's filled with shame. This is what we now call white guilt, right? He just starts vomiting white guilt all over John Perkins. And he specifically says, you wouldn't believe the things that my Nana says. You wouldn't believe her racism. And I don't understand it. She can sit there by her garden. She loves her garden. She loves her Bible. She loves all her devotional books. And she can sit there by her garden reading those uh, books and praying and listening to sermon for hours, but she's racist. She hates black people. And he just says all this stuff. John Perkins graciously listens until he's done and is quiet for a second. And then John Perkins asks him, what does your grandma like to grow in her garden? He says, what? What do you mean? John Perkins says, she likes cucumbers, radishes, onions. 
I bet she likes tomatoes. John Perkins says, the tomatoes in my garden are so sweet this year. You can eat them like apples. Does your, does your Nana like tomato sandwiches? I bet she does. What about blueberries? I've got the best blueberries in my garden. You can make blueberry cobbler. You can make blueberry pie. You can put them on ice cream. You can put them on cereal. And Charles Marsh is sitting there. He doesn't understand what's going on. And then John Perkins looks at him and says, when we get to my house, I'm going to fill a basket with tomatoes and with blueberries. And you're going to go take them to your Nana and you're going to tell her they're from me. And Charles Marsh, years later, would write that that moment changed his life. Because in the midst of injustice and oppression, listen, John Perkins wasn't just getting criticized on Twitter. John Perkins had been wrongfully arrested and tortured almost to death by white police officers for his civil rights advocacy just a few years before this. This was the heat of the movement. And he says, I just want to give you a gift. I just want to show you love. John Perkins is a great man, but he was willing to pour himself out and come down low to serve. And Charles Marsh would write that not only for his grandmother, but for him, this was an altar call. It was an invitation to a new way of living, a new way of being in which the love of God would burn through the walls that divide us. It was an invitation to a life of service. Now, how did John Perkins learn to live that way? He learned to live that way from Jesus And I've heard him tell the story several times, especially after he was tortured almost to death. And he he said, I was in the hospital and I was so angry. He said, if you gave me a nuclear grenade, I would have pulled the pin to blow up Mississippi. But he said, these white nurses came and took care of me and they loved me and served me so well. Don't you love nurses? I see like three nurses in the room. And they loved me so well. And their small deeds of great love changed my heart that I thought, not only do I want to fight for racial justice, But I want to love the poor white people of Mississippi. His heart was changed by their love. This is how the kingdom of God works. The gospel transforms our hearts so that we love people. And then that opens their hearts for the gospel to transform their hearts so that they can love people. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment of division and difficulty and struggle and pain in our culture, we confess that we desperately need Jesus Christ. And I know that there are some in this room who are carrying heavy burdens. Some of them have told me about it, and I'm sure there's many that are carrying burdens they haven't told me about. I just pray right now that the healing love of Jesus Christ would touch every heart in this room. Please let your Holy Spirit comfort us where we're hurting, heal us where we're wounded, call us to repentance where there's sin in our hearts, And I just pray for myself and for everybody in this room. Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you teach us to walk in this path of humility and self-giving love so that we can become your instruments of peace in a divided world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.